0: Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the one that you called your servant, the one that you chose, your beloved, the one in whom you were well pleased, the one you put your spirit upon. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his example of servanthood that we can look at today. Thank you that right there before us is a picture of what you want us to be. It's not about us. It's about others and serving you by serving others. So I pray that you would help us to become more and more selfless and more and more into you instead of into ourselves. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Fulfilling the servant's role we have with regard to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We left our story two weeks ago in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 12. The Pharisees there, and Luke adds to the fact that it was also the Herodians, they joined together to conspire against the Lord Jesus in order to try to destroy him. they weren't able to do that, obviously, although they thought they were. But ordinarily, these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, were not... Seeing eye to eye with each other. They were actually in opposition with each other. The Herodians were favorable to the government of Herod Antipas. And the Greek words translated here as conspired mean that they held a council together. They'd already decided to destroy Jesus. It wasn't whether or not to destroy him, it was how to do it. And so the Lord Jesus, fully aware of all of this, it tells us at the beginning of verse 15, because He's fully aware of absolutely everything. And so the Lord Jesus had some actions that He was doing at this particular time. And those are the actions that we're going to see in just a moment. One writer put it very caustically as he observed what was going on with the Pharisees and the Herodians and trying to conspire together to destroy the Lord Jesus, because what had he done? You remember the immediate context. He'd healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And he had told them that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. And so they wanted to kill him. And so one writer puts it very caustically. To heal on the Sabbath a mortal crime, but to plot murder a perfectly lawful Act, And so you can see what's going on with regard to this. The Pharisees always seem to be cast in a bad light, and here they are once again. It's okay to conspire to kill someone, but it's not okay to heal somebody on the Sabbath. So we're going to see how Jesus reacts to this situation. We're going to see what a true ultimate servant the Lord Jesus demonstrated himself to be. He did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in seeing Jesus fulfilling the servant's role, we can try to be more of a servant Jesus' way. You'll notice in verse 18 it says, Behold my servant. Get a good look at this one who is the servant. We're going to start out seeing Jesus' immediate actions in verses 15 and 16. So here's action number one. It tells us that Jesus withdrew from the place of the conspiracy. Now, Jesus did that at other times when there were threats against His life, when there were times when it looked to be very dangerous. In Luke chapter 4, verses 29 through 30, if you listen and I'll read these verses, it says, And they rose up... And drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. This is another occasion where his enemies, the religious leaders wanted to kill him. It says though, but passing through their midst, he went away. And then in John 8, 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And in John chapter 10 verse 39, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. That's one of the actions that the Lord Jesus did. It tells us that he simply withdrew from there. This was not going to be the point of the fight. This was not going to be the big battle. But the second action, it says, many followed him and he healed them all. Lord Jesus healing anybody who had any kind of infirmity, affliction, illness, spiritual, physical. He's healing everybody. And action number three, he ordered them not to make him known. Why? Why would he do that? And we've seen this before a number of times. Here he is. He's got a great message. He wants everybody to come and know who he is, but he's telling people all the time that they shouldn't avow who he really is. The Believer's Bible Commentary has a great quote here. It says, why did he do this? Not to shield himself from danger, but it's all about timing here, but to avoid any fickle movement to make him a popular revolutionary hero. The divine schedule must be kept. His revolution would come not by the shedding of Roman blood, but by the shedding of his own blood. This was not the time to make a stand. This was not the time to fight. Can you imagine? I, I don't think you can. I don't think any of us can. Imagine being the Son of God, all-powerful, omnipotent, and here are these people that he could just snap his finger and they would be gone forever. They could be incinerated. Any of the, but, but here he is. He walks away from that scene as he constantly did. He would remove himself from right in the middle of those people who would be trying to kill him. When all he would have to do is just say the word and they would all be gone. Can't imagine having that kind of power. And I can't imagine having that kind of power then not using it under circumstances like this. But it's all about timing. This was not yet the right time. The Lord Jesus would ultimately die. He would ultimately die on the cross, but it had to go according to the master plan. And if you're following the outline in the bulletin, Jesus' actions are prophesied here, and that's what we see in verses 17 through 21. The things that Jesus had done that were described in verses 15 and 16 were all part of a great prophecy from Isaiah. It's the longest Old Testament quote, by the way, in Matthew, here quoting Isaiah from these several verses. It's Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 through 4. Let's all find our way there if we can. Isaiah chapter 42. You will see that Matthew's version of this is a little bit modified, but it is this quote from Isaiah chapter 42. This is the first of what are called the servant songs in Isaiah. The first of four of them. Often pointing out to an individual who is coming, the Messiah. A lot of the Jewish scholars and Jewish people down through the centuries have thought that all the servant words here are applying to the nation of Israel, but I think you'll see clearly it's re- referring to one particular individual. It's Messiah, it's the Lord Jesus, and it's very, very clear. So here we are in Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1. Again, here's that behold or look at or watch carefully. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. We're probably most familiar with the suffering servant song that's given for us in Isaiah chapter 52. And let me ask you to turn there as well. Isaiah chapter 52. If you ever have the opportunity to speak with a Jewish person and you get into a conversation and you want to help them to understand that Jesus is the Messiah foretold in the prophets, this is the best passage that I know of to go to, Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. Because clearly, as you read through that with a Jewish friend, and you say to that Jewish friend, who possibly, who's ever lived, could this be referring to other than the person of the Lord Jesus? Isaiah chapter 52, and let's pick up with verse 13. And here we see those familiar words, familiar to us now. Behold, my servant. And that, of course, is God saying the same thing he said about the Lord Jesus in Matthew 12 and the same thing that he said back in Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And let me stop there for just a moment. One writer has said this, this servant must undergo inhuman cruelty to the point, not just that you can't recognize him, but you can't recognize him as being human. That's how badly the Lord Jesus was battered. And no, this is talking about an individual. This is not talking about a nation. And it goes on to say the fact that his form would be beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Into chapter 53 now. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And then, of course, as you're speaking with a Jewish friend or simply meditating on the the Savior himself, has to be Jesus because he was the one who was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And as we read these next few verses, notice how many times the word he or him or his is used. And every time it's used in these next several verses, it is as a substitute for us. This is the Lord Jesus in his substitutional atonement, dying in our place, taking all that he took because we are the ones who should have taken it. So surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he And it continues talking about the only one that it could be talking about, the Lord Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked. And obviously this is Jesus. This is at the crucifixion and beyond. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. for the transgressors. You can see why we turn to that passage when we want to show a Jewish person his Messiah. It's clearly Jesus. It can't be the nation. It is a person. It's Jesus himself. What had God the Father done as we get back into Matthew 12 tells us in verse 18 that he chose his servant. He chose the one who would be a servant, and obviously he chose his son, the Lord Jesus. And the servant accepted his role. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 7, it says, But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's what the Lord Jesus did. And here in Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, when we're looking again at verse 18, that word servant is the Greek word pious. It's not the usual New Testament word for servant. It's not diakonos. It's not doulos. It's often translated as son. And in secular Greek, it was used of an especially intimate servant who is trusted and loved like a son. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, the one that I love in a special, special way. He identified him as beloved and with whom he was well pleased. Same thing that he said when Jesus was baptized. The same thing that he said during the transfiguration. He said he would put his spirit on him, the one that he loved, the beloved one. Well, what would describe Jesus' actions? And this, again, as we're looking at beginning with verse 18, coming directly from Isaiah's prophecies, this is a description of the servant the Lord Jesus himself. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. That's the first thing. The Lord Jesus is not going to be playing favorites if he were. The people of that time, the Jews, would have nothing to do with the Gentiles. Jesus would proclaim justice to the Gentiles and, in fact, to the whole world. He was the Savior of the world, not just the Jews. And so this would extend even to the hated Gentiles. In Mark he indicates the people who followed Jesus to include multitudes from Idumea, Tyre, and Sidon, three Gentile areas. And it says here also, secondly, he will not quarrel. The Lord Jesus was in a position where he could be quarreling all the time. The enemies, the opposition were always there. They were always hostile. But it says he will not quarrel. And that word literally means he will not hassle. He will not wrangle. And it says he will not cry aloud. You don't picture Jesus as being somebody out of control. He had truth, he had a message to preach, but you don't see him acting like a wild man in the crowds. It says that he will not cry aloud. That's a word for barking dogs. He's not going to be somebody who's constantly irritating that way, or a screeching raven, or a drunkard. He's not acting that way at all. He's not going to quarrel. He's not going to cry aloud. No one's going to hear his voice in the streets because he is not a crazy man going around, even though he's got a great cause. Here's what one of the writers said. Jesus did not come to harangue and cajole people with the gospel like a rabble-rousing zealot who inflames his hearers by appealing to their emotions and prejudices. He spoke with dignity and control, and he used no means of persuasion but the truth. He never organized a mob or resorted to trickery, lies, or scheming as his opponents routinely did against him. His was the way of gentleness, meekness, and lowliness. Although he was the son of God, the divine Messiah, and the rightful king of kings, Jesus never tried to secure a hearing, much less a following, by political power, physical force, or emotional agitation. That's how Jesus operated as a servant here on the planet. Are we supposed to do the same? Here's what it says in 2 Timothy 2.24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil. Some people say, "Well, that's not the image that I want. I want to be the macho Christian. I want to be sure to right all the wrongs, and I'm going to do it, and you're going to hear my voice, but that's not what it tells us in the Scripture. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. We don't make ourselves obnoxious. We're not pests the way the Lord Jesus did it. And he tells us we're supposed to be kind to everyone patiently enduring evil even though we carry the truth we're not called to bully people to badger them to butt heads with them to put them down to dominate them to act arrogantly that's not jesus way and that should not be our way either By the very nature of the business that Los Angeles County was involved with, their traffic officers, the police officers, they received plenty of complaints about their work. You can imagine people don't like to be stopped for infractions, and there are a lot of complaints about the police officers. Each of the complaints gets documented and placed in a particular officer's personnel file. And you can imagine over a period of time, they accumulate a lot of complaints that go into that file. But surprisingly, over the past 20 years, Los Angeles Sheriff's Deputy Elton Simmons has made over 25,000 traffic stops and cited thousands of motorists with traffic violations without a single complaint on his record. When his supervisor, a man by the name of Captain Pat Maxwell, started looking through Simmons' file, he was stunned. Maxwell found plenty of commendations, but not a single complaint. It was such a shocking story that a CBS News crew was assigned to follow Simmons in an attempt to learn his secret. First, they noticed Simmons' pitch-perfect mix of authority and diplomacy, without a trace of arrogance or self-righteousness. Here's how Simmons described his approach. I'm here with you. I'm not up here somewhere. I'm right here with you, with all of the other people. I'm not above them. And he puts it this way. He says, one thing I hate is to be looked down on. I can't stand it. So I'm not going to look down on you. The driver who got a ticket from Simmons agreed. The driver said, you know what? It's his smile. How could you be mad at that guy? That's the kind of servant that's pictured here in Matthew. It's the kind of servant that's pictured through the Scriptures that God wants us to be. Not the one who can show the force and all of that type of thing, but to show the gentleness that the Lord Jesus would do the same for. Now, notice something else here that's very significant in verse 20. And in verse 20, it says, a bruised reed he will not break. A bruised reed he will not break. And I'm going to go back just a a picture because I want you to see Elton Simmons. This is the gentleman of whom I was referring a little bit earlier, a man that we would do well to emulate. And now it goes on and it says, a bruised reed he will not break. It's talking about the Lord Jesus. And we can look at him and say, well, what does that mean? A bruised reed he's not going to break. Well, the Pharisees destroyed their people, but Jesus took care of them. The heart of God reaches out to the poor and the blind and the lame. The bruised of society. This isn't talking about things that are out in the fields. This is talking about people. And we'll see this in conjunction with a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. So this smoldering wick, he's not going to put it out until he brings justice to victory. The point is Jesus heals broken lives. He doesn't finish them off. Maybe some of you are feeling like you're one of those broken lives that the Lord Jesus would minister to. Maybe you're a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. You feel like there's not a whole lot left to me. I'm, I'm broken. I don't accomplish what I want to accomplish. I'm sure God's not proud of me. I'm sure that God's not smilingly looks on me and what I'm doing in this world. One of the commentators puts it so well. In ancient times reeds were used for many purposes. But once a reed was bent or battered, it was useless. A shepherd would often make a flute-like instrument from a reed and play soft music on it to while away the hours and to calm the sheep. When the reed became soft or cracked, it would no longer make music, and the shepherd would break it and throw it away. When a lamp burned down to the end of the wick, it would only smolder and smoke without making any light. Since such a smoldering wick was useless, it was put out and thrown away just like a broken reed. And there are bruised, smoldering people that are candidates for being thrown away. Society does that. The culture we live in doesn't have time for those kind of people. But Jesus doesn't do that. What does Jesus do? He hangs on to them. They don't get put on the discard pile but on the restore pile. So if you're feeling like maybe you're one of those bruised reeds or smoldering wicks, understand that the Lord Jesus loves you. doesn't matter how smoldering you get or how bruised you are. Maybe you think you should be thrown away like junk. Maybe you hate the way you look. Maybe you hate the way you think. You constantly compare yourself with other people, and you fall short. Maybe you don't like the way your skills are lacking, or they're eroding. Maybe some of you are getting a little older. Nah, actually, everybody's getting a little older. But some of you are feeling your age more than others. You think about the many times you fail. It tells us here Jesus wants justice for you. He wants you on the restore That's what he does. That's what makes him different than the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people, our society today. And then fifthly, it tells us that it is in Jesus' name that the Gentiles will hope. Let me um, go to, uh, I love to go to acronyms, and we're going to go to an acronym of servant to summarize where Jesus is here, where God wants us to be. Jesus came to fulfill the servant's role. What exactly was it? What are we supposed to emulate if we're to be a servant like him? Let me summarize this. The first thing we see is that he was spirit-controlled. That's in verse 18. Behold, my spirit whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well-pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Spirit-controlled. As we're walking through life, We need to have the control of God, the Holy Spirit. There's a command for us in Galatians to be filled, constantly be being filled with the Holy Spirit. If we're not, we're on our own. We're always going to fall. We're always going to falter. I would encourage each one of us, if we understand that the Spirit is not controlling our lives right now, confess that to the Lord. And whatever it is that we're doing that we know is Displeasing to him and displeasing to his Holy Spirit and ask him to control and empower us. That's what the filling of the Holy Spirit's all about. To control and empower us. So he was spirit controlled. He was an example also of servanthood. Those words that Dr. I read for us earlier were talking about the servant and the suffering servant new testament version the lord jesus in fact let's turn back there just to review a couple of those phrases in first peter chapter 2 first peter chapter 2 and we'll pick up in verse 21 it says for to this you have been called so this is Christ as our example you've been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. God never promised that it would be easy. It was never supposed to be easy. What about Jesus? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And remember, he's not screaming in the streets. He's not crying out against anything that's going on. Um, That wasn't the way Jesus did things. When he suffered, he did not threaten, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he took that all the way to the cross, the Lord Jesus serving us in that way. Obedient to his master, even when it was hard, even to that point of death on a cross, even to being the suffering servant, not taking the easy way out, but following the master plan. Or, in the word servant, he reached out to the world. You see that as we're looking at the text before us again in verse 15. It tells us he healed them all. Verse 18 will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Verse 21, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. The Lord Jesus reaching out to the world. That's what he wants his servants to do as well. We also see that he achieved victory for justice in verse 20. He displayed authority and diplomacy in verses 19 and 20. He took the high road gentle, meek, fruit of the Spirit, not the low road, force, power, manipulation, control, bullying. He was not quarrelsome. We read that clearly in verses 19-20. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. He was engaged in truth-telling, not emotional tirades. Not only will he not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. That's the Lord Jesus. Now let's look around. We see the example of the Lord Jesus. Can we see any human being to use as an example of that? There are many. There are a lot here in our midst of servants who are servants this way that you see on the screen right now. There's another famous individual. I want to bring him to our attention as well. Sometimes people make fun of him because he is the epitome of meekness and mildness. In 1965, a thin, soft-spoken man sauntered into Pittsburgh's WQED, the nation's first public television station, to pitch a show targeting young children. The concept was simple enough, convey life lessons to young children with the help of puppets, songs, and frank conversations. Doesn't sound like much. That is until you realize that the man was Fred Rogers, and the program was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. How many of you are familiar with Fred? I was going to wear my sweater today, but I I didn't. People make fun of me when I wear that sweater, but they they call me Mr. Rogers, and I've got several that are like that, and I don't mind being called Fred Rogers. He was more than a great neighbor or a good host. He was a restorer. According to an article in the Next Christians, a a periodical, a restorer is someone who views the world as it ought to be. Faced with the world's brokenness, restorers are provoked, not offended. They work to make the world a better place by creating, not criticizing, and by being countercultural, not relevant. Using this definition, Rogers may be one of the greatest American restorers of the 20th century. Do you realize why he got into television? Because he hated that medium. During spring break of his senior year in seminary, he encountered television for the first time, and what he witnessed repulsed him. That was old-time TV. Can you imagine what it is today? He said, I got into television because I saw people throwing pies at each other's faces. And that to me was such demeaning behavior. And if there's anything that bothers me, it's one person demeaning another. That really makes me mad. In the wake of World War II, Fred Rogers worried that the type of programming that was becoming normative would create a generation of emotionally bankrupt Americans. Faced with the decision to either sour on television itself or work to restore the medium, he chose the latter. He dropped out of seminary and began pursuing a career in broadcasting, Fourteen years later, he would create one of the most beloved American television shows of all time and one that would shape entire generations of children. Talk about soft-spoken, gentle, not quarrelsome. Let's reform, not criticize. Let's make sure truth is taught. Virtue is extolled. Fred Rogers reached out to the world of children all over the world. He was a servant, but he wasn't the servant. He was not the ultimate one. The ultimate one is described on our screen right now. And the ultimate one wants us to be like Him. Heavenly Father, thank You for giving us the opportunity to realize how You want us to live our lives. Thank You for showing us a glimpse of the Lord Jesus. And thank You that as each one of us realizes, He came not to be served but to serve. May that be the path that each of us walks, realizing it's not about us, but it's about Him and following Him and serving the way He serves. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.